Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Ines Huli, general partner of 500 Istanbul. Ines has founded and manages the best performing fund in the 500 Global Fund family. Today, we're diving deep with Ines on his experience founding a 500 fund, how he has grown it from 10 to 50 million euros, and exactly what Enos believes is his secret behind his fund's stellar performance. We're of course also getting into Enos's views on the potential on the Turkish and Central and Eastern European ecosystems, and his super intense approach to deal sourcing. An approach so intense, we've also invited Enos for live Q&A on the topic of deal sourcing scheduled for the 6th of April. You can sign up for it on theeuropeanvc.com forward slash events. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Do you get cold inbound deal flow that you'd wish you could help but can't invest in? You might consider directing them to the European VC's newly launched self-paced fundraise acceleration program and community. It's tailor-made for founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round and gives them a clear 10-step process to go from wanting to raise to ready to raise. It's community-centered, giving them access to mentors and fellow founders to spar with around their process, plans, and pains. Stop sending founders on their way with an empty referral to another VC firm or angel group. Send them to a community and resource that will actually help them go from minus cold outreaches to a deliberate fundraising plan that will actually work. Send them to the europeanvc.com forward slash raise. Ines, welcome to the best podcast on VC in Europe. <laughs> That's because Ines has his own podcast called CC Podcast. So, Ines, welcome. Thanks for having me. My podcast is a big hit. There are a couple dozen people listening to it, which is not that great. I think it has something to do with the name. I think the name doesn't make sense. The best name for a European VC-focused podcast seems to be Take It Over. (laughs) (laughs) Now, but maybe let's start just a second talking about your podcast. Why are you doing it and what are you getting out of it as a VC? I started the podcast about two years ago and the basic idea I had in my mind was that a lot of the online content about entrepreneurship and venture capital is really Americanized. And what I mean by Americanized is American success stories, American venture funds, investment thesis that only rely on the American market, but the rest of the world is different. An entrepreneur from Romania has much more to learn from an entrepreneur from Turkey than an entrepreneur from the US, given that they feel they have the same disadvantages, they have the same lack of access to capital, etc. So that's why I started the podcast to bridge these different ecosystems around Central Eastern Europe and Turkey and share these entrepreneurial and venture capital investor stories so that there's more coherence between them. And so far over the past two years, I guess we recorded about 80 episodes. No one seems to like them. No one seems to listen to them. But I'm still doing it because I think it's a good way for me to meet new people. So now I think that the biggest advantage that I get from it is meeting new people, not people listening to it. 
That's how we met you, Ines. So. <laughs> You're one of 500 startups' local funds, whatever that means. We'll deep dive into that. And I've heard a little bird told me that you're one of the best performing ones. So that's really interesting. So maybe let's start with the basics, which is your route into venture and the raising of this fund. I started doing angel investing back in 2014, 2015. And the basic idea that I had back then was that there are a lot of entrepreneurs in Turkey who are trying to go to the US, go to these top tier accelerators like Y Combinator, Five Fund Startups or Techstars, but they can't even find the first 25 or 50K ticket to be able to do that. So we formed an angel network around it. Given that we didn't have that much money, our ticket sizes were 25K to 50K and the angel network was called First Seed. That's when I met with 500 startups. Back then, 500 was trying to expand globally, roll out these different funds in places like Mexico, Canada, Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea, etc. And they were thinking of Turkey as well. So back then, the management team came to Startup Istanbul, which used to be the biggest startup conference here in Istanbul. They came here in 2015. I met with them and they gave me a scholarship to their program in Stanford, a program called Venture Capital Unlocked, which only deep dives into VC investment thesis, how to govern compliance, back office stuff that a VC does, etc. So I spent a couple of weeks in San Francisco at the Stanford program and at the Five Fund Startups offices. Back then, the Middle Eastern fund was just getting set up, but the investment thesis for Middle East is way different than the one for Turkey. In Middle East, you mostly invest into proven business models executed locally, from Middle Eastern founders, not the case for Turkey. For Turkey, that phase has passed by far. I mean, we had the local e-commerce giants, local grocery delivery, local payment networks, etc. So investment thesis should more rely on exporting technology rather than focusing on the local market, which is why we carved out Turkey from the Middle East, coupled it with Central Eastern Europe, where investment thesis would be similar, although the market outputs are different, theses are similar. So that's how I went with 500 startups, and they introduced me to my partner, Rina, we started fundraising probably Q2 2016. It took us three, four months. And then mid-summer 2016, we raised our first fund. That's quick. <laughs> it's small. When you think small, they're quick. So the first close for the fund was only like 5.5 million. And then we got it up to 10 million by the final close. But that was it, right? So when your goal is there, it becomes quick. Many would say that that's too small. What's your thought around that? It's much easier to do good returns on a small fund. So it's an advantage to start small. Secondly, using the five fund startups framework um, that they gave us back in the day, it was easy for us to jumpstart our operations. I mean, we already had all the legal frameworks, regulatory frameworks ready. And that's a steep learning curve there for a new emerging fund manager. Plus, it's too costly. But once you get all of that from five funded, it becomes much, much, much easier to start your fund. First fund, 10 million. Where are we today in that story? Sure. So 10 million fund, we deployed about a bit more than $8 million into 40 companies. Out of those 40 companies, we have one unicorn, one sunicorn. Hopefully they're going to announce that they became a unicorn soon. And then five companies that are valued above 100 million. And given that our entry valuations in median was $3 million, we were able to generate great returns in fund one, both in terms of net TVPI and also net IRR and some BPI. We had four early exits in the first four years. So we started the second fund beginning of this year, we did first close. Um, it's a 50 million euro vehicle, again, focusing on Central Eastern Euro and Turkey. What is your guys' secret sauce? What has allowed you to have that performance so far? And what has allowed you to go from a first 10 million euro fund to now a second 50 million euro fund, which many wouldn't anymore say that it's too small. Yeah, it's not too small anymore, but there's a lot of market inflation, right? I mean, if we are doing great returns, I think half of that success is ours, but the other half is the fact that there's been a market inflation, <laughs> definitely on every level, by the way. 
When you look into our fund, we have three different investment categories. One of them, first category are companies where we find in Turkey. We invest at very low, very opportunistic valuations, and then we help them grow mostly to more mature technology markets like Europe or the US. There, we're doing a great price arbitrage. There, you can do great paper returns in the next six to 12 months. And if you can do enough paper returns in six to 12 months in a large enough of a portfolio, hopefully those paper returns are going to get realized soon. So I think that was the initial uh, multiple that we were able to get out of a portfolio of 40 companies. The second type of companies are companies that try to become more regional. So not every company has to go to Western Europe or the US, especially if they're more starting in more competitive, mature, boring, as to say, markets. Then they have to execute locally, get to good revenue figures, have enough of a team, get some resources from capital perspective, and then expand to countries similar to Turkey. We have a third of our portfolio there. And then the last third are companies that start in the US or Western Europe, but they have their technology offices back at home. So they're already doing the talent arbitrage themselves, these founders. I think from those three buckets perspective, initially the best performing was the first bucket. So companies that are trying to go to the US, we enable them. We are the enablers, so we make the multiples. But over the past year, year and a half, a lot of our U.S. companies especially grown a lot. I mean, two of them are unicorns now. So over the past two years, the returns shifted from that first bucket to the third bucket. And I think the second bucket, which are companies who are trying to become regional, we have a couple of good success stories there as well, like Insider raised from Sequoia, $50 million round, now active in 25 countries around Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Southeast Asia. But I think that has been the lowest performing bucket so far. I'm guessing since you have these three buckets, do you try to develop a portfolio with those three buckets and with that share? Or do you more say, okay, this is just how it has developed? It is how it was developed. I mean, we didn't have that narrow focus of an investment thesis and only to the fact that our investment thesis was not to invest into locally oriented businesses. And that's where we position ourselves. But that's now a lot of the funds in Central Eastern Europe and Turkey. But looking into our deal flow, there were some trends. One of the trends was a lot of people in Turkey, if they want to go global, they want to go to the U.S. So there's more deal flow towards that direction. And a lot of the companies there are more B2B SaaS. So as a consequence of that, after four years of investing, we saw that a lot of our portfolio companies are B2B SaaS targeting the U.S. That has become a team in and of itself. And once we look into deal flow that we had and the portfolio, we saw that there were three trends that emerged. And while we're crafting the investment thesis for Fund 2, we again went back and tried to think, What are the trends that we want to follow? What are the trends that we're going to do less in fun to? Being part of the 500 startups ecosystem, I guess that you're also attracting very much companies that are going to the U.S. because of that connection. Exactly, exactly. I think our core differentiation when we entered the market was, hey, if you want to go global, we are 500 startups. So we have a 100 people team back in the U.S., but we also have people in 25 countries, whether that's Japan, Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, it doesn't matter. If you want to go global, you can come to us. But given that a lot of our deal flow are more companies tailored to the U.S., the U.S. selling proposition of that statement becomes much more heavier than the rest of the 25 countries that we operate in. So, Ines, I'd love to dive a bit deeper on the value that 500 Startups Networks brings to you. One part being the uh, portfolio side of it. So what do they do for your portfolio companies? But the other and more interesting to many of our listeners, since they are emerging managers, might be what do they do for you specifically when you are en route to become a 500 Startup VC? When you actually want to launch a fund within 500 startups in a specific region or vertical, they give you the regulatory framework and the agreements that you're going to use. And that's very helpful so that you know what you're going to do. And as you're onboarding new LPs from a compliance perspective, KYC, AML, those are also huge issues that a fund manager has to pay for 
or has to know about. So the Fight Fund Startups legal team also supports you along the process. But all of the funds within Fight Fund are sovereign within and of itself. For example, in our fund, we're three general partners. Three of us, we do the fundraising, we do the deal sourcing, we do the deal making, we do the portfolio management. So the, all the core parts of a fund, we do it internally. And then Fund Startups acts as layer around it. Um, that starts with the legal and regulatory framework, but after you actually raise the fund, there's a portfolio of more than 2,500 companies that Fund Startups has invested in. There are about 400 mentors in our mentor list. There are probably about hundreds of different perks that we can provide to our portfolio. And if you tried to build all of that, it would again be very costly. And you probably need a, not a 50 million euro fund, but probably a <laughs> 500 million euro fund to be able to build all that. So Fund Startups gives you that platform. We call it the Founder Hub. So any company that you invest in, after you invest in, they have a direct reach out to any Fund Startups portfolio company, any Fund Startups partner, any Fund Startups mentor. They can reach out to all of them, which actually scales our portfolio management efforts and puts it in a different stage scale. Apart from that, apart from the value that Five Fund Startups gives as a framework, there's more and more you can take. There's more and more you can make. So one of our team members now will be onboarded, Eje. Her job is to continuously dwell the Five Fund Startups network to see where she can actually find introductions. To, for example, we have a company that's in the financial institution space who is looking to get introductions to different financial institutions in Southeast Asia. Me personally, I have zero connections there, but using the other five fund startups funds in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, et cetera, we can easily facilitate those introductions that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. And the reason why we all help each other within five funded is because we're all incentivized from each other's success from a carry perspective. Just as 20% of our carry goes to five fund startups, it's similar for all the other funds. And then we're also really active on the HQ level as well, which creates all these synergies. We actually do biannual meetings between all the five fund startups GPs, Pre-COVID, we did one in London, then we did one virtual. Now we're doing one again at the end of the year, which I think connects us even more within 500. And how about with the raising process, LPs and so on, are they an assistance there as well, or is that entirely on the GP team? GPs do most of the fundraising, but I think we leverage the Five Fund Startups brand. I mean, hearing that we are a Five Fund Startups fund, for better or worse, investors think that their downside is protected. Again, they're <laughs> not protected at all. <laughs> this fund can easily do 0x, let me be clear on that. But it creates that perception that their downside is limited compared to all the other funds, which is a great help. We have one conference every year called Pre-Money. The next couple of days are the annual LP conferences within 500. So there you get to meet with all the five fund startups investors, whether they're from Korea, Middle East, or Mexico. And you see a lot of these fund of funds who want to invest into emerging markets or a lot of corporates from different parts of the world, like Korea, like Mexico, who want to invest into other emerging markets within their own category. They actually want to do cross-fund investments. And we have great case studies there as well, where a fund, where an investor from Singapore would invest into Southeast Asian fund, and then the Korean fund, and then the Middle Eastern fund, for example. We talked a bit about your investment thesis. You expanded a bit on these three buckets that just naturally popped up. But we skimmed a bit too quickly over the potential of Turkey and Eastern Europe. And I'd love to hear you expand a bit on that and understand a bit better the ecosystem. What are the profiles of founders you're seeing, so on and so forth? When you look into Turkey, I think the biggest advantage that Turkey had was in terms of number of engineers graduated on an annual basis, Turkey is number two in Europe after Germany. In terms of the growth in the developer pool with 16.5%, Turkey is number one in Europe, increasing its developer pool in an annual basis. So that brings a lot of opportunities by itself. When you look into VC investments per capita, Turkey has been by far below Central Europe or Eastern Europe. But what's even worse is if you look into VC investments per engineer, 
in every country, Turkey becomes even worse. <laughs> so that's the whole opportunity that we saw in Turkey. And although the VC investments have been very low for the past 10 years, over the past four years, we've seen more than $4 billion in liquidity. So the exits are there. And when you look into these exit profiles, these are not previously from 2010 to 2015, all the exits locally were locally oriented companies where the global giants who want to enter into Turkey yeah. would buy that local giant. That has shifted as well over the past five years. The companies that were exited were either exited for their team, their product, their technology. Most of them had global user bases or global revenues. So there's a diversified M&A landscape where the buyers can come from the East and the West. They can come for anything, the market, the product, the team, or the traction, etc. Plus, really, lack of access to VC capital. So I think that's what Turkey is. Some countries in Central Eastern Europe are similar to Turkey in that sense. Ukraine is a great example where VC investments are very low. Number of engineers, I mean, it's one of the top outsourcing destinations globally. And although it has been in a problematic environment for the past 10 years, still the ecosystem has been delivering returns over and over again. So Ukraine is similar to Turkey. Romania used to be similar to Turkey. Now it's shifting a bit because... Western European VCs are looking at Romania. Even US VCs are looking at Romania after UiPath. But some markets in Central Europe are more overcapitalized. Poland is a good example of that, where there are dozens of VC funds for the past five, eight years, thanks to the government's program. Or Hungary is a good example of that. So what I'm trying to say is, I think from a talent perspective, you see great engineering talent throughout Central Eastern Europe and Turkey. From a lack of access to VC capital perspective, I think Turkey thrives along with Ukraine and Romania. Considering this talent pool, two questions. Are you seeing this talent pool gravitating towards specific verticals and spaces? What are your thoughts around that? And then secondly, considering that talent pool, which verticals and spaces are you particularly excited about? And is there a match there or is there a mismatch there? There are some large companies where we call them the Renaissance companies that became the first unicorns or the first big tech giants within a country. And then with a multiplier effect, it actually spins off more companies within themselves. For Turkey, it has been Udemy, which has been an education technology company in Ankara, became a unicorn. And we actually invested into three engineers, three different companies that spawned out of the Udemy people that were there. So that was one. Gaming was the second one. After Peak Games became a unicorn, we saw four or five companies emerge from gaming. And one of them became a unicorn. One of them, I think, will soon become a unicorn. So I think these verticals that the talent has been focused on, they weren't focused on that up until they graduate. But after they graduate, instead of working at a local bank, they go for a gaming company. So they start a gaming company themselves. Gaming has been a big trend like that. And then the second would be B2B SaaS. And in B2B SaaS, I think a lot of the companies that we see here in Turkey are more mid-tier B2B SaaS. And what I mean by that is they're not trying to become MailChimps or Wixes of the world where they're selling something for $100 to I don't know, thousands, if not millions of people, they're not trying to become the very high-end SaaS where they have to sell stuff for 50K or 100K per month. They're more 1K to 10K per month inside sales team, easier to sell culturally. You don't need to have a big sales office in US or London. You can still have a sales office in Turkey, which is much more cost-effective. And yet the contracts are high enough where the economics are not that tough to manage. I think that's been the B2B SaaS category that we see a lot of companies emerge, irrelevant of their industry. 
these companies can be cybersecurity, fintech, marketing tech, wherever. You said something I'm quite curious on, which is the macro-political environment. You touched on it in regards to Ukraine, but I'm also guessing, at least from a Nordic perspective, then you'd say, oh, there are also quite some fluctuations in Turkey. What are you experiencing as a VC there, especially with, I guess, many international LPs as well? Obviously, Turkey has been through a lot, economically and politically, over the past like five, six years almost now. But that has not so much impact on the startup ecosystem. I think it brings opportunities by itself, given that this is a very long asset class where you invest, you have to stay in for 10 years. The value chain in this asset class compared to private equity is much more global. A seed investor can be local where the series A, series B investors would come from China or the US. And then the revenue basis, obviously, because there's close to zero cost of goods sold, easier to expand globally, much more scalable businesses. For example, in our portfolio, out of a revenue of $300 million over the past 12 months, only 3% is in Turkish lira. 97% is in international currencies. So given those dynamics, I think it's easy for an entrepreneur or for a venture capital fund to not get affected by the geopolitical climate that they're in. And a big, big, big example of that is Ukraine. I mean, they've been in war for I don't know how many years yet. There, We still see Ukrainian um, unicorns come out with the majority of their offices in Ukraine and that something whatsoever in the US. So looking into that, I think there is less effect on the Turkish ecosystem. It affected our deal flow greatly, positively. When we first started venture investing about five years ago, I would say 70% of our deal flow were local companies, companies who were trying to become local giants. That has shifted dramatically. Now maybe 30% are local companies, 70% want to go global. And that has a lot to do with the geopolitical climate that area and the devaluation of the Turkish lira or the market appetite towards Turkey, etc. You've spoken quite a bit about prices and valuations. <laughs> I'd love to hear how you're thinking around price sensitivity, especially given what we've been through the past years. When you look into our portfolio, there are some times where we're not price sensitive and there are some times where we are very price sensitive. So when we invest into more blue ocean companies where the upside is unlimited, virtually this company can become a unicorn, it can become a decacorn, you never know. You look into the market that they're in, you look into the founders and you're like, hey, sky's the limit here. Once that's the case, we're really not price sensitive. A company that can be valued at 7 million, the same company can be valued at a 70 million. And perhaps we wouldn't care depending on the right terms. I mean, we're that's less price sensitive. For more competitive markets where the upsides are more limited, either because of the geographic boundaries or because of the market that they're in and the competitive dynamics in the market that they're in, then we become very price sensitive. What I mean by that is if you want to invest into a company at 7.5 million valuation, just because the valuation is 10, we're not going to be price sensitive. We're still going to invest. But if there's like a one to three change in what we expect and what the reality is, then we think twice in those certain markets. For Turkey, it's been a buyer's market for a while now, and it still is a buyer's market on the early stage. Although we've seen a lot of investments come in, more than a billion dollars in VC investments in 2021, about 96% of that has been Series B and beyond. So if you only narrow down to seed, there's still about 50 million annually invested in seed and pre-seed, which gives us the opportunity for this to become a buyer's market. And you can, I think as long as we don't hurt the cap table, it's easy for us to get 15%-ish ownerships on a seed deal in Turkey, which is impossible to get in the US. No matter how much you want to invest in, the founders would just not want to give that ownership on a pre-seed level. You said something there, which I think is interesting, that when you're going in, you have some of them in the bucket of, okay, these guys can go to the sky, they can become huge. And then you also have companies that, you know, they won't, but I'm still interested in investing. Could you take us through your thinking on that type of portfolio construction? Because many VCs would say, I only invest in the ones that can become the unicorns and decacons. 
I want to do that as well. I mean, if we had the deal flow enough in Turkey and Central Eastern Europe, then our whole portfolio would have been binary. It would have been more like this company would either become a unicorn or go bust in the next six months. And I'm not afraid. I mean, I think from a risk appetite perspective, our fund, Fifant Istanbul, what separates us from the rest of the Turkish funds at least is we have the risk appetite. I mean, we can easily invest bigger tickets at pre-seed level without seeing any traction whatsoever. And there's a big chance that the company is going to go bust in the next six to 12 months. And we're okay to take that risk. The reason why we have a more 50-50 split within our portfolio is because of the deal flow that we see. Because there are not that many Turkish A-plus entrepreneurs who are going for very newly emerging markets, potentially one of the first movers globally. We don't see a lot of those, right? Because of that, because 90% of our deal flow are more red ocean companies and 10% are more blue ocean companies, we came to a 50-50, almost a 50-50 split within the portfolio. But if we saw more in those binary deals with unlimited upsides, then we would have more in the portfolio. Do you think that will change with the development of the ecosystem? That 10-90% split that you just said? It would. I think we need more companies that are going to act as education platforms for these entrepreneurs to learn about these newly emerging technologies and then build their own companies to execute on them. Currently, there isn't enough. So because of that, a lot of the entrepreneurs are good executioners. I mean, they've been with another startup or a company and they've executed well, but they're not going for moonshot ideas right now. You have uh, shared with us, I believe, that roughly 75% of your deal flow is outbound, and that's quite amazing. But to our listeners, that's actually the result of a policy kind of that you guys have in-house. Do you mind explaining our listeners what we're talking about? Of course, of course. Obviously, we have, I mean, we get some inbound as well. We have our website, LinkedIn, emails. I'm a inbox zero kind of person, so like every morning I have to start with inbox zero. Because of that, we get a lot of inbound, obviously. But when you look into the total number of companies that we've screened and the total number in 2021, so the first eight months or the past eight months has been about 4,000. When you're screening 4,000 companies, a lot of them, most of them are going to be outbound. And when you look into the companies that we've actually done deep dives to, and the number there is about 35, we've done 35 deep dives. And what I mean by a deep dive is we meet with a number of customers if they have any, we meet with the whole team. We do a detailed analysis into the market and the competitive landscape. And we do at least two, three expert calls within the matter with the company, us and the expert present. So we had about 35 of those. Almost all of them have been outbound. That shows us that, I mean, sure, we have 25% of the deals that come inbound, but that might as well be 0%. It wouldn't change our portfolio almost. And the reason why we do a lot of outbound is in our team, we have two analysts, one investment manager, one vice president who also acts as a CFO, and then three general partners. All of us, we spare 30 to 50% of our time on deal sourcing. So everyone has to do deal sourcing. I think deal sourcing is what brings meaning and value to the job that they do, irrelevant of the position that they're in. And it's also what makes us easier to stay in the game as a venture capitalist. Even if you're a CFO, even if you're an HR person in a venture capital fund, I think you should be doing deal sourcing. Once you look at it from that perspective, all of our team members want to do minimum two, three, maximum five, six screening meetings per day. And there is only a limited number of opportunities in Turkey, as you might imagine. That's why we wanted to include Central Eastern Europe after a while. That's why we're doing more and more diaspora, because for us to look into like all of these deals, we need more deals than Turkey is capable of producing right now. Could you share a bit on your outsource or outbound strategy? How do you find deals? How do you uh, approach them in the beginning, so on and so forth? Of course, obviously, we use LinkedIn Sales Manager and we have a bunch of alerts, all of us separately, to reach out to different founders. We also have one LinkedIn scraper that we scrape once a week and that's pushed into our Google Sheet. So anyone who has a keyword Turkish and lives in the US and recently changed their title, 
we get notified of it. So 95% of them are not founders. The rest of the 5%, majority of them are not founding startups. They're founding trucking companies, construction companies. <laughs> but every now and then you see something interesting. So that's something that we do as well. We have events. So we do something called the Founder Shuffle, where if you're thinking of becoming a founder, hey, we have this event, join our event so that we're going to know who is actually thinking of being a founder. Because more and more on pre-seed, we learn about some companies which they don't have a website, they're not on LinkedIn, reach out to the founder, they're closing around with A16Z leading 5 million. <laughs> and the company isn't formed yet. We did one investment, actually it's our biggest ticket investment, a million dollars into a company where the founder was still full-time in his previous job. Actually, two months after we invested, he became full-time at the company that we invested in. So as all of the funds go more and more pre-seed, now you're not trying to attract founders, you're trying to attract wannabe entrepreneurs. Yeah. To do that, yeah. we also yeah. do an event. Now we want to roll out another program where we're going to say, hey, if you're working in these 20 companies, and these are going to be 20 largest startups from Turkey, and you're thinking of actually starting your own company, just book a slot for me, one hour, you're going to meet with a GP, at the end of one hour, we're going to say we're investing or not. It's like an expedited process because you are working at this big tech giant like Getir or Insider. So we're trying to roll out these programs so that we don't miss on any of the deals produced locally. And lastly, another policy that we have is if you had one meeting with any of our colleagues within our team, after your second meeting, a GP is going to become the champion. So you're not going to have four meetings with an analyst or an investment manager over and over again until you reach the GP. GPs has to be accessible from the get-go. What does it take for you to develop that type of commitment to a startup founder, someone who just wants to be an entrepreneur but hasn't yet formed the company? What is it that you see that you just can't keep your hands away? I did 45 investments over the past five years. More and more I realized that, I mean, obviously initially I was like, hey, team is very important. I mean, everything matters, but team matters more. Now I'm like, only team matters and fuck the rest, nothing else matters. So <laughs> any question that I'm asking, whether that's on the competitive landscape or the market or the go-to-market strategy, Unit economics doesn't matter. I'm trying to reassess and revalidate the teams. It's not the answers that I'm looking for. It's the way they approach them. So that as long as I know they're smart enough to figure it out, even if there are bad unit economics or the competitive landscape might not allow a new player to enter, if you're bullish on the team, you would invest. So within our investment decision making, we also have a scorecard. Obviously, we don't look into the averages and decide we're going to invest or not. But in that scorecard, if a team gets five out of five, then I think irrelevant of the market they're in, even if they're trying to build a grocery chain or a car rental company, we would invest. Team is by far the leading cause. And in our investment comedy, it's three GPs, myself, Aruna and Rina. Another policy that we have is if one of us wants to invest and there are no ethical red flags with the investments, then we would proceed. So although it's a unanimous vote, it's not that all of us have to be convinced. If one person is convinced enough, and most of the cases, it comes down to the team again. One person is convinced that the team is great, whereas the others have question marks, then we would move forward and invest. There's nothing I love more than hearing about the decision-making processes of different firms. Could you deep dive a bit on that also on how do you decide on follow-on rounds and so on? I think we're in the business of being contrarian. And while you're in the business of being contrarian, if three of the investment committee members are bullish on an investment, perhaps it's a boring, not contrary enough investment. So I think there has to be question marks. Some of us need to have doubts and we shouldn't be as bullish on the team or on the premise or on the opportunity, but then one person should take the lead. Not the case in follow-ons. While we're doing follow-on investments, since we're doing more on a Series A level and the ticket sizes are larger, I mean, we can go all the way up to 4 million in our follow-on tickets. We need to see more execution. I mean, we need to make sure that all of the quarterly reports that we get from the company, there is momentum and this is a rocket ship that's growing and we put our capital in. 
So while we're doing follow on, we try to act as a series A fund and see momentum and growth and business metrics. And then we invest, but not the case on seed. I think on seed, you're just planting seeds, right? You're planting seeds into teams who are hopefully going to perform over the next 18 to 24 months. And then once you realize that this is a rocket ship, that's when you preempt and double down. Yeah, that was actually my follow-up question there on follow-on rounds. Do you see yourself more preempting and saying, now we're doing this before A16C can get in? Or do you say more, now nah, we try and see if we can get validation from one of the big companies and then we then we follow on? What's your thinking? Where do you lean? Positive market signals matter in some of the companies, especially the ones that are in places like the UK or the US. We want to see positive market signals from other VCs. But for places like Eastern Europe and Turkey, since there are not that many funds, we're not looking for positive signals. We want to preempt more. In our investment thesis, we're going to do 25 investments, about 500k each. Then 12 of them, we're going to do 2 million follow-ons. Within those 12, I think the split would be half and half, where six of them, we're going to leave again. We're going to maximize our ownership, preempt the round. And majority of these companies are going to be from Eastern Europe and Turkey. But the other six, we're going to co-invest. And hopefully there's going to be another lead investor who's leading again. Most of these companies are going to be companies that either moved to the U.S. or were born in the U.S. or U.K., a more mature technology ecosystem. Our second follow-ons, we're going to have six tickets of two million each. I think all of those are just going to be us trying to keep up with our prorata. Ines, it's time to start the ending segment of our episodes, which is a quick fire round. That is quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Let's do it. First question, in venture, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel excited about? And maybe these are the boring companies you talked about. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think if I was a VC fund manager in the US because a lot of the funds are more doing moonshots, high risk high gain kind of investments, I might be going for the cockroaches, which is what we like to call them. I mean, these companies who are executing well on a not so sexy strategy. But given that we're in Eastern Europe and Turkey, a lot of the funds and investors have, I think, low risk appetites. They want to invest into businesses who have actually validated their business model and unit economics. So we're trying to counter position to that. One of the biggest learnings that I had over the past five years was that as a fund, the only the outliers matter. So you have to take all of your shots on whether these companies can be outliers. And no one cares how many of your companies failed as long as you can spin the narrative around it. And more and more, we're trying to do like that. Second question, what's the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned since you founded 500 Istanbul? The most counterintuitive learn thing that I learned was initially with Fund One, we had a large portfolio, 40 companies. So all of our follow-on tickets were to retain our ownership. We tried to get in and retain our ownership in these great companies with really huge, great positive market signals. But more and more, when I look into other funds who actually led those deals in the companies that we invested on seed or pre-seed level, it's really important to build conviction on Series A as well and maximize the ownership. So with Fund 2, one thing that we're going to experiment is to stretch and become a Series A fund. A lot of seed funds don't say that. A lot of the seed funds say that they reserve follow-on capital to participate in future runs and keep their ownership. I think when you look into our Fund 2 now, about half of the fund is us trying to act as a Series A fund. And that's been a learning over the past four years when I look into different Series A co-investors that we had in our top performer portfolio companies. Final question, which is what can we expect in the future from Enes and 500 Istanbul? So I think we're going to roll out different funds and products. And by funds, I don't only mean venture capital funds. We have to have a venture debt fund as well. There's a huge appetite both from investors and also entrepreneurs for venture debt in Eastern Europe and Turkey. And it wouldn't just stay there. We're probably going to start having funds who are going to go public in the Turkish market. I think this asset class has to get more productized and more flexible. Currently, it's very rigid. 
where VC funds are 10, 12, 15 years, whatever. If you invest, you have to stay for 15 years. And on the entrepreneur side, you have to sell equity. And then you have a partner with you for the next five to seven years, which means you have to start thinking of selling your company in the next five to seven years. That's very rigid and I don't like it. So I think revenue share funds, venture debt, public funds who are going to be much more easier to get liquid on both sides of the equation. We're going to hopefully roll out all of those, starting with SPVs. So we're now experimenting with doing small three to five million SPVs into our best portfolio companies in fund one. And if we can nail it, and hopefully we will, we're going to continue doing that in fund two as well. So I think VC asset class is getting productized and rolling out different asset products in the US, but not so much in Europe. Is that something you are seeing inside the 500 startup ecosystem that you're discussing a lot between GPs? Or is it something that's entirely born in Istanbul? No, definitely. So 500 Startups has done probably close to 10 SPVs in great unicorns, actually. For example, like Bukalapak or Smart HR out of Japan. 500 Startups is active in rolling out these SPVs and we have a framework where we can roll out SPVs for very cheap. I mean, it's like 10K initial fee and then yearly fees are indismissible almost. Having that regulatory framework and the structure ready, it only makes sense for us to invest more and more into our top performing companies. And when you calculate it mathematically, imagine we're a 50 million fund deploying 10 million annually, right? If we can actually do one SPV every quarter, which is about 5 million in size, that's double our fund size with close to zero management fees, which is great for the investors. And then 20% deal by deal carry, which is great for fund managers, only your wins count. So I think it's a win-win on both sides. And Five Fund Startups has been experimenting with that in Japan, Southeast Asia, and the US. We're a bit late to the game, but we're trying to catch up. Thank you so much for joining us, Ines. So happy to have you here on Europe's Best VC Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. And I'll send you a screenshot of our number of listeners. You'll pity me and you'll start listening just to see. (laughs) I'm sure you've loved this episode with Ines. And to follow him and hear much more of his thinking, go to uh, the CC Podcast as well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.